Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's conference call, Russia, OPEC, and the Prospects for Cooperation. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. Later, you will have an opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. Please note this call may be recorded. It is now my pleasure to turn today's program over to Tom Wallen, Editor-in-Chief at Energy Intelligence. Please go ahead, sir. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Um, uh, we have today with us uh, our uh, Moscow Bureau Chief, uh, Noe Sharoshkina, and also the um, the the news editor for Eastern Hemisphere at Energy Intelligence, Alex Schindler. And our topic is Russia, OPEC, and the prospects for cooperation. Um, we, it, it's a particularly um, uh, uh, topical subject with the intense negotiations underway in Tehran today and the agreement yesterday uh, between uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Venezuela uh, in Doha. Um, but before we start, I just want to make one uh, introductory point to frame the discussion today. Uh, and that is basically that the oil market obviously is understandably concerned with making an immediate yes or no reading uh, on the progress of these latest talks. And we, of course, will be delving into some of that as we uh, go through our discussion today. But we also want to dig deeper here and look at the positions of the various players and also the possible future directions uh, for this OPEC, non-OPEC uh, cooperation. Um, I also think I, I just, uh, Alex, if I could just uh, turn it over to you for a second here to give us the, the latest that you're hearing from what has, uh, what has occurred today in Tehran for the benefit of every, everybody on the call. Um, can you fill us in? Yeah, so um, like Tom said, we picked a, a very topical subject for today. And uh, the meeting in Tehran ended about an hour ago. As far as we've heard, um, it lasted three hours. Uh, it, it concerned Venezuela, Iraq, Iran, and Qatar, and, and the purpose was to bring some of those um, proposals that were discussed uh, yesterday in Doha, uh, particularly between Russia and Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, on the subject of a production freeze as a first step to try to bring some balance back to the market. So that proposal was brought to uh, Tehran today by Qatar, who is the OPEC president, and presented to mainly Iraq and Iran, um, who, who are kind of key players in whether this thing gets off the ground. And like I said, that ended about an hour ago. Uh, the meeting took about three hours. Um, we're still trying to figure out what are the details of um, whether there's a deal or no deal. After that meeting, we're hearing some conflicting um, statements already. Some Iranian journalists are saying that there is uh, no deal, and, and we're hearing also from our sources that um, there potentially will be a deal. So I, I guess we will not weigh into that right now unless we, we know uh, one way or the other, but I guess that's the state of play as we see it. Okay, well, thank you. Th thanks for that, Alex. Um, why don't we start, Nelly, with you. Um, you know, I, I, I think one, one of the questions uh, um, on everybody's mind is that, you know, with Saudi Arabia having you know, achieved its goal 
uh, at this Doha meeting yesterday of participation by Russia in an oil output agreement, uh, even if it's just a freeze uh, rather than a cut. Um, how would you characterize the current Russian view about such agreements, and how have views in Moscow evolved on this question over time? Um, I would like to say that the agreement reached yesterday is optimal for Russia. On the one hand, uh, it demonstrated uh, that Moscow is open for cooperation. On the other, Russia doesn't have to do anything special, as it was planning to stabilize production this year at last year's level anyway. And Russia's production reached, uh, in 2015, 10.7 million barrels per day. And in January, Russia was producing at even higher level of ne nearly 10.9 million, million barrels per day. Uh, this is according to the preliminary data, which could be amended, though, when the final statistics is released by the end of the month. So no special agreement with Russian oil producers is needed since no artificial production cuts are foreseen, which Russian oil companies oppose so much. So both the government and oil companies' representatives say it won't be difficult to fulfill the obligations if the deal is concluded among all the sides. As for evolution of Moscow views, yes, uh, they have changed. Just at the end of last year, Russian officials were saying they didn't see any point in discussing joint steps with OPEC, and now Moscow says it is open for a dialogue, although artificial production cut is still out of the question. Okay, well, go, well you know, going to this question of a production cut, there's long been skepticism about Russia's promises to OPEC on output, and I think it, it reflects a view that Russia has never actually met its output targets in past agreements and also um, reflects uh, the practical concerns that you, you referred to about uh, Russia being able to uh, control output for operational reasons. Um, how well-founded is this skepticism about Russia? Uh, this skepticism is rather well-founded, and you were right mentioning the absence of positive experience of Russia's cooperation with OPEC in the past. Uh, in terms of operational reasons, major volumes of Russian production comes from mature fields with high water cut, which often reaches close to 90%. So in winter, it is just impossible to shut in such wells without the risk of having water frozen and maybe even exploding. But even if you do it in the summer, after reopening the wells, you will just be producing water. This is at least what Lukwell's president, Vagit Alekperov, just said it to me again yesterday. What are you going to regulate? Water, he said. The natural decline is about 400,000 barrels per day in Russia coming from the mature fields, but it is replaced, from, uh, replaced by the launch of new fields, which could be delayed, but oil companies won't, won't do it, particularly when investments have already been made since they will be trying to recover costs. So uh, this artificial, this, 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 that is why the issue of artificial uh, production cut is uh, very acute with Russian oil companies, and they resist the plan uh, any time it is raised uh, by anybody. Okay, and, and, and in, in terms of um, you know uh, the overall um, position of Russia here. Uh, how much pain is Russia feeling from these low prices, and is that why we have Russia coming to the table now, and, and, and do you see it taking a more active role with OPEC as we go forward? 
yes, uh, Russia and I mean the state budget rather than oil companies is rather severely hurt by low oil prices. Um, it's not a secret that Russia is dependent by nearly 50% uh, on incomes from oil and gas exports. And the current system, tax system, also works in such a way that the lower the prices are, the less the government gets. And under $30 per barrel, it's only about 12 or $13 per barrel that the government gets. Under 20%, it will be getting only four. Under $20 uh, per barrel price, the government will be getting only $4. And uh, it used under $100 per barrel. The government used to receive close to $80. Uh, so uh, you see the, the huge difference. And uh, Moscow cannot allow the budget deficit to go much uh, above 3% of GDP because there is not enough money in the reserves funds for more than a couple of years. And Russia doesn't want to stay without these reserves on the eve of the crucial years of uh, elections, parliamentary elections in 2017 and presidential election in 2018. So uh, three budget deficit is foreseen under the oil price of $50 per barrel. So now the prices are much lower, and the uh, budget deficit could reach 5% under $30 per barrel. So this strain certainly made Russia come to a negotiating, uh, negotiation table with OPEC now, and it was confirmed by Russian energy minister Alexander Novak, who openly said that prices uh, prices are different right now, and that's why Moscow changed its view. But I don't think that Russia will take a more active role with OPEC going forward, because uh, if you watch what Russian officials say, they uh, often and always they keep saying something like, we are ready to participate in discussions, we are ready to, to participate in the talks, if we are invited. Right, so they're they're not ready to step up to sort of a, a bigger, um, say, leadership role with non-OPEC or something that ambitious. I haven't seen any signs of that. Right, right. Well, Alex, look, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, they're obviously the other key uh, protagonist here. How, how does Saudi Arabia view the current agreement to freeze output, and wh what is it, it trying to achieve with this. Um, I think the question on, on people's mind is, is it really committed to such an agreement or is it just posturing? Yeah, well, I think I would characterize it similar to how Nelly put the Russian position. Um, this freeze, uh, what, what, where she said it's an optimal deal for Russia, I, I think for Saudi Arabia, this is basically a no-risk deal for Saudi Arabia. It, it ticks a lot of boxes without really forcing Saudi Arabia to commit to very much at all. And you know, like Nelly says, Saudi Arabia has no real intention of raising production much higher than where it is now. And they, you know, so if they can agree that, look, let's keep production steady, and, and Russia agrees let's keep production steady, I, I think neither of them really risk very much in this. But so, so what do they gain? Well, it, basically, it's a low-stakes deal. Um, that, that basically Russia and Saudi Arabia can agree on. So, so the concept is that these two major oil producers, which have not really been able to agree on very much, can agree on this. And this is sort of classic OPEC fair. Uh, you know, they've done this time and time again. Find something you can agree on, and then then sort of trot that out as some form of agreement, and uh, and and see how the market reacts. Um, I think the most important part of this for Saudi Arabia um, is that. 
uh, if we're talking about whether we're going to be able to bring balance back to this market, is that it helps build some trust between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And I think this is really what part of what this deal is about. Can uh, and, and the other and each side will be watching the others. You know, Saudi Arabia will be watching Russia to see, okay, can you know is it willing to keep production where they say it is? And Russia will be watching Saudi Arabia for the same thing. And I think if if the two sides see that they can stick to this deal, which is which is basically very easy to stick to, then then that at least uh, build some confidence on both sides that maybe a bigger deal is possible a bit further down the road and um, and help sort of put aside some of the, the deep distrust in the two countries coming from both uh, you know, political areas and also economic areas. Um, and I think I think the other key thing for Saudi Arabia with this deal is it puts pressure on Iran. Um, basically, all of OPEC's 13 members uh, have no real intention of raising production very much at all. Iraq has some ideas to do so, but but Iran is the one that's bringing oil back to the market uh, and wants that about a million barrels a day this year, uh, quite quite aggressively. And I think Saudi Arabia and Russia both see this as a, as a very bearish sign for oil prices, and I think the rest of OPEC does as well. So if Iran was able to agree somehow to, to some uh, uh, in this agreement some sort of moderation of production or even a, even a freeze. That would be a huge win for uh, both Saudi Arabia and Russia, and neither side, neither of those two big producers have to commit very much, whereas Iran would actually have to give up quite a, quite a bit of what it said it wanted to do. And if it all goes well, then then it's possible then that this freeze by itself could help bring some balance back to markets. But but I guess the, you know the, the, it's a starting point is what I'd emphasize, and and uh, you'll see what happens later down the road. Okay, well, thanks, Alex. On this question of cooperation between Russia and Saudi Arabia, um, and this is really I mean, maybe a question for both of you, um, how significant is it? And uh, I, in fact, I think some people see it as quite surprising given the deeply strained relations that exist now between them over over Syria, for example, and, uh, and other issues. Um, Alex, do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. Well, I mean, the two sides, you know, what you're talking about is the two sides are on this, uh, either side of this bitter conflict in Syria, and uh, they both support opposing sides. Obviously, Russia is supporting the Syrian president, and Saudi Arabia is supporting the opposition uh, or some factions of it. But it also comes in this broader context of the question around sort of fundamentalist Islam or conservative Islam, where, where Russia, you know, is concerned about this spread throughout uh, inside its own country and, and the rest of Asia, and you know Saudi Arabia is seen as, as one of the propagators of this this type of ideology, which then you know turns out uh, entities like Islamic State or Al Qaeda, etc. So I mean politically they, they couldn't be more sort of opposed, and, and the Middle East couldn't be more of a mess right now, and they're on opposite sides of it. So the question has been, okay, can these two sides actually get a deal uh, based on this sort of poisonous political environment? And you know, I, I think that there that means that, that the the need to sort of build um, trust, sort of as I mentioned in the last question, is is critical uh, because there's a deep chasm between the two of them. So, um, you know, is, is a deal possible? Um, I would say yes because I think they both share um, the the uh, outcome of getting prices a bit higher and not even a bit higher. A lot higher than they are today, and all this that Saudi Arabia wants low prices. Um, you know that sort of ignoring the fact that Saudi Arabia is, is an oil-producing state, as Nelly says. Um, you know Saudi Arabia depends on oil income for 
you know, most of its state budget, you know, far more than 50%, as Russia does. So, you know, oil, low oil prices are hurting Saudi Arabia. It can, it can uh, you know, get through them, but um, it, like Russia, wants higher oil prices. So the, the desire to get prices a bit higher um, means that, yes, um, there, there is a desire to overcome some of these political differences, but it's going to take time to actually get that done. Nellie, what do you think about this question? I can only add that uh, the dialogue between Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia uh, intensified last year with a visit to Russia by high-profile prof- high delegations from Riyadh. And you know that King Salman could still visit Russia this year. At least it is expected. Uh, I think that there have been a lot of political reasons for that. Uh, but uh, um, Saudi Arabia is a key regional player, and Russia has to take this into consideration. Uh, as far as the uh, links between uh, uh, political, uh, different views on political issues and the uh, possible cooperation oil price, today Putin's spokesman said that there is no link between Syria and oil production in Russia's dialogue with Saudi Arabia and Russia sees them as two separate matters. This, however, reminds me of the relationship with Turkey. Moscow and Ankara had successful economic cooperation for quite a while, despite political disagreements on many issues. However, however, we see that in the end, politics ruined these relationships. Okay, good good, good analogy there. Um, So... Uh, Alex, I guess we should get really to the heart of the matter here on Iran and Iraq. They're obviously critical to the success of of any output agreement. Um, What do you think it takes to bring them in, and how realistic is it to expect some genuine cooperation from them? Well, I I think we'll probably know a bit more in in an hour or so when when and if they actually make some statements. But I think for Iraq, uh, they are open to participation. Um, they've been not open to participation in OPEC uh, coordinated cuts um, since the 90s, and or they've been exempt, officially exempt. Um, but the, the the signals we've heard from Iraq in the last, I would say, since the OPEC meeting um, late last year, has been that they are potentially open to a cut, and and certainly it would be open to a freeze. And and I think like Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, they don't have a huge amount of upside um, this year to bring online. So, again, they wouldn't be giving up very much at all if they, they agreed to a freeze. And, and the, the main question, of course, is, is Iran. They, they are the ones that are really going to struggle with this, the concept of freeze because they are going to be the ones that are be forsaking a million barrels a day um, of increased production, which is what they want to achieve in, in uh, 2016 and uh, have made it a political priority to do it. So... You know, we have to watch really carefully what what the Iranians say um, today after this meeting, if they say anything, and and whether there can be a deal somehow to be agreed uh, with Iran, where they're able to keep their somehow their political objectives of raising production, uh, while somehow working within this broader freeze um, to help um, you know, give some confidence to the market that these the major players can work together. I think there is a possibility of some compromise in there because I think this is not just a show. I think there is a real um, determination to get something done here. And as we've seen in the past with OPEC, if there is a determination, they tend to be able to find creative solutions to uh, get something that resembles a deal. 
Okay, well, I guess watch this space, and we'll see. We'll see if you're you're right about that. Um, Nelly, uh, do, you, do you think that um, uh, uh, Russia has much leverage um, in encouraging some cooperation from Iran in this output agreement? Is that you know the, the relations obviously between Russia and Iran are much are much better than they are with Russia and Saudi Arabia? I so much. Uh, answer is very short. I don't think, uh, I think that Russia uh, has very little leverage uh, in encouraging uh, cooperation from Iran. I'm not even sure that Moscow is discussing this issue with Iran. Yesterday I asked um, Deputy uh, Prime Minister of Russia, Arkady Dvarkovich, if uh, there is any preliminary agreement with Iran on the issue, and he refused to answer saying only that all negotiations are in the hands of Russian Energy Minister Alexander Novak, and you know that Alexander Novak was not, is not even in Tehran today. Okay, thanks for that. That's very interesting. So, Alex, given this whole picture, all these d different elements we've discussed here, what are the prospects of success for this output freeze? Uh, uh, and, and more broadly, uh, what are the prospects of this evolving uh, into a more forceful accord that actually cuts production? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I just add even to my last you know, comment there that even if Iran today comes out and says no, that doesn't mean it's no. It, it, this is an evolving you know, agreement, and I think um, you know, like you said at the beginning of the call, Tom, you know, everyone wants to know sort of what this means for oil markets today, but. Now, this is this is a start of a long-term process that where all these sides are feeling feeling their way. There's no grand plan here that people have to try to uh, get to try to pull off. It, it really is trying to figure out how to find solutions with a lot of different moving parts. So, I mean, if we think this freeze is more than just beyond a symbolic deal, um, which I, I think it I think it kind of is. I think it has more substance to it. I think there is real desire in some of these major players to actually get something done then I think there are a few ways this thing can work out. The first is that you, you kind of pull off a freeze or um, sort of agree amongst the sort of OPEC and non-OPEC countries with, or, with Iran somehow. And you just hope that uh, market forces continue to push the market uh, fundamentals back into the right direction. And so you have an you know, increase in uh, you know, global demand that goes you know, 1.2 million barrels a day uh, in 2016, according to the IEA. And, a decline of about 600,000 barrels a day from, uh, from non-OPEC, and, and the, the freeze helps sort of those market fundamentals do their job, and, and you're going to start to see potentially a more balanced market in 2016. So that, that's one scenario. Um, another scenario is in six months or a year, uh, if this freeze works, if this freeze holds, you don't really see much improvement in the fundamentals, and the players say, okay, we need to do something further. In that case, then there may be more discussions about whether a cut is required. And the benefit of this freeze is that all the players have been talking to each other, agreeing on things, monitoring things at the same time. So you have this sort of uh, forum to discuss these sort of things and potentially uh, more trust to actually get it done. And then, so if you need to do a cut, then the question is how big? And I think there's two schools of thought right now on that. One, sort of do a series of smaller cuts, maybe about a million barrels a day, to kind of tweak it and see how, it, how the market responds. Um, and the other school of thought is that you need to do a big cut, 4 million barrels a day plus, to uh, basically take a whole lot of oil off the market and really draw down these huge overhangs of stocks, which uh, if you talk to 
um, banks and uh, uh, people who look at the data, they say this is the major problem, that you need to work off these stocks. So you need to have a major cut to kind of start drawing down these, these huge stocks. And the only way you do that is by, you know, numbers like 4 million barrels a day plus combined with OPEC and non-OPEC. So I, I think those are some of the scenarios how I can see this playing out. But again, stress, I would stress that the there is no grand plan here, I think. I, I don't think any side knows how it's going to work out. They're just trying to find a way to, to agree on things they can agree on now and then build confidence for the future if they have to do something a bit more complicated. Okay, well, thanks. Uh, and, and if the oil market reacts negatively to, to, to this uh, uh, um, freeze and the oil, oil prices drop back again, say, to the mid-20s, uh, in the coming weeks uh, or months, um, how are Saudi Arabia and Russia likely to react to that? Um, Alex or Nelly, do you, Alex, do you want to uh, tell us what you think of that? Scenario? Sure. I, th- I think on the Saudi side, um, while they don't like low prices, they're not going to enter into knee-jerk reactions. They have enough uh, foreign reserves uh, of cash uh, saved up, which they can use and tap this year to keep spending relatively stable um, or, or keep, keep their budget as plans. Um, so they're going to wait for the best deal that they can get. They're not going to sort of do uh, a bad deal just to do any deal, where I think a country like Venezuela would, would potentially do that, uh, countries that are under a bit more pressure. And, uh, uh, as, for, you, yeah, go ahead. Uh, as for Russia, uh, I have already said that no artificial production cuts are foreseen, but Russia is going to use taxes as an instrument to regulate production. At least this is what uh, has been said uh, by uh, Arkady Dvarkovich, Russian deputy uh, prime minister overseeing the energy sector. And uh, he said that uh, uh, Moscow, he pointed out that Moscow has already increased taxes on oil companies, and this reduces their potential to invest and will not, not allow increase of production by any significant rate. He said that if the situation on the market stabilize, uh, stabilizes, then we won't have to increase taxes, and then there won't be a decline in production. So this is, uh, you know, the instrument or the approach that he called a scenario approach. So taxes can go up and in this way uh, protect oil companies from big investments into production, into exploration, into drilling, which in the end will result in production decline. Uh, So um, uh, Russia also has other ways uh, as for for, uh, taxes also um, um, help getting additional income into the state budget, and so Russia has other instruments to do that. So right now, it's Russia is discussing expenses cuts, um, um, privatization of state assets, and uh, uh, also maybe borrowing on the external markets. Okay. Well, thanks. That's that's very helpful. I think um, we, we've been we've been going on enough here. I think we want to open the the uh, uh, open this up to questions from the audience. Uh, operator, can you help us with that, please? Certainly. At this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question today, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We'll pause for a moment to allow questions to queue.
Okay, well, Operator, if we don't have anything right at this moment, I, I, let, let me just go back to Alex and Nellie with another question. Um, so um, what, what can we say about the oil price objectives of Moscow and Riyadh, um, uh, assuming they have some success in, in, in curbing oil supply? Uh, to what extent do they want to keep pressure on high-cost producers such as U.S. shale? Um, do, 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 do you want to comment on that either? Nellie, do you want to comment on that first? Um, I can say that $50 per barrel is, is the price that the state budget is based on now, although it is to be amended using the $40 per barrel level. Now $60 per barrel level is seen as uh, optimistic, uh, although only last year, the end of September of last year, uh, Russian Energy Ministry was talking about $85 per barrel, but, uh, uh, um, uh, $85 per barrel uh, to be reached by the end of 2020. So uh, I think that, you know, just 50 right now, you know, 40 is critical, 50 is something that Russia can live with. As for U.S. shale oil, uh, Moscow understands that technology would develop and production costs would be going down. So it would be more and more difficult to keep pressure on U.S. shale. Uh, I, can also, I can only quote um, President of Rosneft, Igor Sechin, who last week, uh, uh, when um, making his presentation at IP Week uh, conference in London, was uh, saying that shale revolution in the United States has serious uh, limitations in terms of time and scale. And he quoted the uh, reports and forecasts that say that um, the breakthrough of the shale revolution uh, in 2012 and 2014 will never be repeated. And also um, another quote from him, and naturally it's you know just based on endless estimations that Bacon and Eagle Ford would peak by 2017. At least this is the view that you know just I can give you as an example of thinking in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, uh, Alex, what, what about this, the Saudi view on prices, and, and 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 do they do they want are they sort of in the same camp at fifty dollars, or do they have a different view? Do you think? Well, I mean, curiously, I mean, this fifty-dollar number has been emerging in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, one article we published last week in CIW uh, outlined the case for fifty to sixty-dollar price bands from a ex-Aramco official, Saad Al Husseini. Um, and that matched up with um, other um, sources, other Saudi sources that are sort of talking about the same thing, talking about fifty dollars a barrel. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways it is aspirational. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily see them going back, you know, OPEC going back to what they did um, at, at, in the early two thousands to late nineties to sort of declare a price bounds, because I think that they just know they can't defend that. But but I think it is curious that there is some sort of consensus emerging around the sixty dollar number. And uh, now, so what does that mean for U.S. shale? Um, I, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways people realize that trying to pinpoint where U.S. shale um, actually gets reactivated again, which is what both, uh, I think, Nelly would agree, Russia and, and OPEC are concerned about, um, that they cut production and then U.S. shale, that prices go up in U.S. shale and fills, fills the gap. Um, you know, trying to pinpoint where U.S. shale, quote, breaks, breaks even, which we talked about in, in past uh, past virtual roundtables, we've really not been able to figure out where that number actually exists. But I, I think that the message is finding that break-even cost is not easy, and it's not, maybe not even possible. 
Um, so you really have to consider that as an unknown. You just don't know what the break-even U.S. shale is going to be. Um, so to take a view that around 50 to $60 um, is probably not going to reactivate a whole lot of U.S. shale, but it also will mean a lot of other unconventional or high or expensive oil won't be activated too. You kind of hope that you know at that number you can knock out a lot of the expensive oil, whether U.S. shale or deep water or even OPEC production or anything like that. It doesn't really matter. In my view, I, I don't think the Saudis really care about whether it's U.S. shale or any other um, expensive oil. I think they just care about is there too much oil in the market and how do we make sure that supply is somewhat close to demand. And so, yeah, I, I, I think this, this sort of $50 number is, um, is at least an emerging consensus that uh, probably needs a bit more examination, um, but, but it, it is interesting that a lot of different producers are kind of talking the same number, which maybe explains why we're actually having producers sit down and talk a bit and, and find some sort of compromise. Okay, good. Um, operator, are there questions at this point? We do have a few questions today. We'll go first to Dina Ignatovich. Your line is open. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask about um, more about the U.S. Like, how do you expect them to react to this? And um, I mean, you partly answered the question about what price do you think would get them to restart production, but it, it just seems like nobody's really talking about the U.S. Uh, with this agreement going on because they kind of are a game changer in the or they have been a game changer in the industry over the last few years. So. Just um, what are the thoughts on the reaction from the U.S. side? Well, I, I think that there's there's sort of this assumption that the that the, the uh, you know the U.S. Is, is you know can't be brought into some kind of non-OPEC accord because of all these independent companies operating. That, that's sort of a sort of a starting assumption. Mm -hmm. But um, there is, I think, this this question about uh, you know how how uh, damaged. Uh, the U.S. shale industry is by what's gone on, and what, and, and as this stretches out, how much uh, it's damaged. Um, and and I, I guess this gets to this point that Alice is making just now about what um, you know, wh what's the kind of break-even price for shale. Um, but a Alex, do you want to comment on this as well? Do you have anything? To yeah, add? I mean, I, I mean, I, I think what I can say about this, at least from the OPEC view of how they see it, um, you know, the problem with U.S. shale was that it was growing at um, huge amount every year, so you know between 300 and a million barrels a day coming out of the U.S. That wasn't just U.S. shale, but it was sort of whole U.S. production. But every year you're adding, you know, hundreds of thousands of barrels a day, and and that amount of um, U.S. shale plus other non-OPEC supply was basically outrunning what the global, what the incremental global demand numbers were. So you know you were growing at a million barrels a day for global demand, but actually the supply, non-OPEC supply, was growing far more than a million barrels a day. So, you know, what I, I think there's a misconception that people have to knock out U.S. shale. I, I don't think you need to knock out U.S. shale. You just need to make sure it doesn't grow as rapidly as it was in the past. And it, and it was growing so much in the past because oil's at $100 a barrel. So you need to kind of take a view on what you think uh, that number is about where U.S. shale will be just growing in leaps and bounds again. And I think this kind of comes back to this $50 number. You know, is $50 that number? No one's really sure, but it's half of what oil, oil used to be. Um, so, 
you can take it. You can take a view on it and say, well, I think that at fifty dollars, U.S. shale should not grow as rapidly as it was growing at a hundred dollars a barrel. And and it, and if you can kind of make take a punt on that, then you then you can try to see, say, well, I think this is a safe number, and that um, yes, U.S. shale can still grow, but just not as much as it was before. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. We'll move next to Colin Smith. Your line is open. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my question. It was really one for Nelly. You made an interesting comment about um, uh, the Russian tax system. Um, and as I understand it, there was a plan to not fully implement the tax maneuver, um, but it's a bit unclear to me exactly what the status of the proposed changes in, in Russian tax or taxation are. And I wondered if you could just enlighten us on where we've actually got to and whether proposals have actually been firmed up into legislation or if that's still a matter of negotiation. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, right now there are various... Uh, um, options under consideration of increasing tax burden. But as far as what has been done so far, uh, the concrete things where you know that the freeze on the export duty decline that was decided on last year uh, to get additional 200 million rubles into the state budget. And right now, the, um, there was the decision to increase the gasoline excise tax. And it's already, you know, just the second one. The first one was on the 1st of January, and the second one is something that, you know, just is going to be approved just in the coming weeks. So uh, this um, will be an additional load uh, on the oil refineries of the Russian oil companies because uh, they will have, you know, just like only Luke Oil says that it will be about $60 billion or $800 million uh, uh, that they won't get uh, this year. So these are the, the already, we can say, the uh, done deals. As far as other uh, proposals, including, for example, the changes in calculation of mineral extraction tax, they are still under consideration. And uh, right now, Dvarkovich yesterday said that everybody is against it, except for the um, uh, Russian finance ministry. So they are also uh, discussing, as you know, just increasing um, dividends payments to the state budget, but, you know, still under consideration. As I said, the concrete things are excise tax, you know, just that the, the, the new one, uh, another 2,000 rubles per liter, no, per metric, per metric ton, is, uh, is un- not under consideration, but needs just the final, final signature. That's it. Thank you. And as a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question today, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. We'll go next to Pamela Tedarenko. Your line is open. Hi. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for a very informative discussion. How close this, I realize, is separate to, to Russia and OPEC. How full are we, how close do we are be, to being full on global inventory? I, I'm glad everyone's willing to come to the table. I think Iran is a key factor, absolutely, I agree. If I was Iran, I'd be looking for, well, what are you going to pay me to offset that million barrels? Inventory is something that I've been watching, too, and and tankers are slowing down. We've got tankers sitting on the water. So how close are we to to that being a really tangible choke point at this point? Um, I think that we're getting close. I think that, you know, there's, there's, Clearly, signs that the, that, that there's um, you know limited uh, storage options uh, on land. 
uh, in all the major markets. The, 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 you know, to varying degrees, uh, tanks are filling up. We're seeing the, you know, contango in the market uh, curve uh, increasing. Uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, signs of, uh, of floating storage. But I think that. There's a there's flexibility in this, you know, and 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 um, the that 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 will that will put you know more and more intense pressure, uh, especially on prompt prices. Um, but um, people, the industry is creative, and uh, um, you know they they find ways to cope with these problems. So uh, I I would say this is something that's, that stretches out. I don't think it sort of reaches some kind of critical tipping point and then there's a there, there's a crisis it's just an, an intensifying pressure um, but I, th- I think the expectation is that it's going to become you know particularly acute uh, for crude oil this spring when we have we've you know we have refinery maintenance turnarounds in the US now they're going to be starting in Europe and then in Asia throughout the you know sort of the the, the rest of the first half of the year and 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 that's when we're likely to see a lot a lot more pressure on crude oil um, storage um, I don't know if that uh, Alex or Nelly, did you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's pretty much a pretty yeah. good answer. I mean, I, I think the only sort thing I'd say is that that we, you know, you have uh, the question about China and how much space they have over there. And uh, in 2015, they took a pretty intense uh, buying program of, of crude, um, even though there were some questions about whether their demand was actually that high. So. Uh, I think there still isn't quite the same the visibility about how much China can absorb um, in its mm-hmm. tanks and its strategic storage, and I think that mm-hmm. that's the uh, kind of the unknown in, in, the, in the sort of global inventory or global storage equation. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions? It appears we do have no further questions today. I'd like to turn the call back to our presenters for any closing remarks. Okay. Well, why don't, why don't we just close with one? I, I have one question for Alex to close with, and you know, the, I think the, the, this may help put this in perspective a bit. And 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 that is, you know, what 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 does the history of past agreements between OPEC and non-OPEC, uh, you know, such as the one in in '98, '99, what does that tell us about the prospects now and the time timeline we're looking at? Well, I, I think, as Nelly said in the beginning of the call, uh, the the prospects of non-OPEC OPEC agreements or the history of non-OPEC OPEC agreements is not good. And I, we went back and counted some of them over the years, and I think we could pinpoint maybe two of them where where Russia and OPEC kind of came together to actually agree on something, and even then they didn't actually uh, deliver what they said. So there isn't there isn't a sort of great history of of actually coming together to actually do something. Um, so, uh, but but there is the second point. There is that if if everyone's eager for a solution, then something can be worked out. And um, I think uh, this is sort of a, a similar thing that we saw in '98 after the Asian financial crisis. You had uh, the urgency was there from all producers that said, "Look, it makes sense to come together and try to do something because low prices are." are too low, and and this is unacceptable for all of us. So they came together to try to figure out a solution. Um, it took them time to get something done, and I think you know probably maybe a, a, a key takeaway here is that um, once they start talking, it takes a long time to get anything done. So uh, what we saw yesterday with this sort of quote freeze, which people call a non-deal, and everyone dismisses as not very important. 
And this is the first step in a long process uh, that may or may not result in a deal, but I don't think we should necessarily think that, that a deal happens once uh, everyone shows up, gets together, and then they, they walk away with something that's actually going to make an impact. It takes time. And back in 98-99, you know, it took, uh, it took at least a year to get something solid of talking. So, you know, we're in January, so, you know, it, it could easily take all 2016 to get something solid. And so, so I think, again, if anyone's impatient for, a, for something concrete and people are disappointed about, you know, a freeze and how it won't do anything, um, you know, they have to look back at how these things get done. And it often is a, a set of small, uh, tiny baby steps that maybe in the end result in something that can actually make an impact. Okay, well, thanks for that, Alex. I think uh, with that, we'll have to wrap things up. Um, we're out of time. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Alex and Nelly uh, for their answers and for everyone uh, who participated in the call for the questions and for being with us. We'll be um, convening another one of these virtual roundtables uh, in March, uh, middle of the month, and we'll be sending you details about that and look forward to you joining us for that one as well. So uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, have a good day.